0: This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Elevate, we are going to hit the ground running tonight. If you came... With your thinking caps on, you are going to be engaged from beginning to end. And if you came just to hang out and not pay attention, you're going to be drugged behind the cart and miss the view. Are you guys ready to go? Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read a couple of verses to you, pay close attention. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who is that one man whose sin came in? Adam. And so death spread to all men. Jump to verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's us. So by one man's obedience. Who's that? Jesus. Many will be made righteous. I want to open up with the concept, and it's a theological concept, called spiritual Federalism, think like the federal government, spiritual federalism. And this is critical. Whether you remember that word or not, it's critical for you to understand this about who Jesus is and who Adam is. Tonight, we're studying the character of Melchizedek, part one. We're going to look at him in Genesis, but then we're going to go to part two next week. We're going to jump into Hebrews 7. Everything about tonight is laying the groundwork for understanding Hebrews 7 next week. So pay close attention, take good notes. It's all important. Spiritual federalism. The best way that I can explain it, and this is an imperfect example for sure, is think about our elected representatives in the United States. We vote them in, and then they make decisions on behalf of the country. Now, if those elected representatives make the decision to go to war, we are all at war. And we will receive the consequences or the benefits of the outcome of that war because those representatives represent the whole. Adam was the federal head of the human race. So whatever he did, we are considered to have done And whatever his punishment was, we receive that punishment. Adam rebelled and sinned against God, therefore it is accounted to us. We are held accountable as if we rebelled and sinned against God. And he received separation from God and death, so we receive separation from God and death. And if you're thinking and you're a little bit offended, you're probably thinking, wait a minute. I might have done things differently than Adam." Or maybe you're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't vote for Adam to represent me. So it raises the question, who chose humanity's representative? And it's a great question. And there is only one answer that we can come to. God chose him. The perfect, omniscient God who knew every one of us, who knew every day of our lives, every thought, Every word, every action we would ever do, he would know the motives of our heart. God, who knew us and knew the human race, chose perfectly because every one of us, had we been in Adam's bare feet, would have done exactly what Adam did. Or girls would have done exactly what Eve did. So we are counted as having rebelled. We are born already under the curse of Adam. Now, because of God's great love, God enacted his rescue mission of us all. God chose a second representative for us. He chose Jesus. And where our first representative failed and destined us to death and hell... Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience on our behalf. Then he took his, our sin on himself, as well as our punishment on our behalf. So being a descendant from birth, we're under Adam's sin and punishment. But for those who are united with Christ, we are now under Jesus's righteousness and the reward for his righteousness. I'll read Romans again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That is the idea of spiritual federalism, that one stands in the place of the many. You got to hold that in your mind because it's going to be important this week, but it's going to be greatly important next week. So far in Hebrews, our author has been showing us again and again that Jesus is superior to every other intercessor between God and man. He's superior to the angels. who's superior to Moses. He's superior to the law. And he began the conversation, our author of Hebrews began the conversation that Jesus is superior to the high priesthood, the Jewish high priesthood. And the priests would act as representatives for the people. But then our author pauses and he warns everyone that's listening that they just might not be spiritually mature enough to handle where he's going. In Hebrews seven, he picks up the conversation again. And that's where we're gonna begin tonight, but then we're gonna go trace where he's coming from. He's going to dig into the life of Abraham and investigate a unique character named Melchizedek. So who is Melchizedek and why is he important? Turn your Bibles briefly to Hebrews chapter seven. We're gonna open up the conversation and then go on a search. Hebrews chapter seven, verse one. Actually, let's rewind a couple of verses to verse 19 of chapter six. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What is that? For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Man, this is going to be interesting. But first, before we can understand who Melchizedek is, let's get our minds around who Abraham is and why he's important. At the very beginning, just like we talked about Adam, Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, God made them a promise. And you can find this in Genesis 3, verse 15-ish. And God promises them and says, The serpent that tempted you... I'm going to send a hero, a redeemer, and the redeemer is going to crush the head of the enemy. He's saying to Adam and Eve, there's going to come a day, I'm going to send a redeemer who's going to defeat sin, who's going to crush death, and who's finally going to get rid of the serpent, of the tempter. But God is not going to go back to the clay to make this savior, redeemer. In fact, he tells Eve, he... Singular male, he is going to come through your descendants. Well, that's really interesting. Adam and Eve have two kids. Well, through which of them is this hero going to come? We have Cain and we have Abel. Well, Cain kills Abel, that removes him. And then Cain is cursed by God. So options are looking great. So Adam and Eve have a third son, his name is Seth. And it's through Seth, it actually says that in Seth's day, people started worshiping Yahweh again. So we have a comparison of the two genealogies. We have Cain's genealogy, and we have Seth's genealogy. The first thing that happens in Cain's genealogy is that one of his descendants commits the second murder. He gets in a fight with a young man, he kills him, and then he goes and brags about it. But then we trace Seth's genealogy, and we see in Seth's genealogy, we have Enoch who God loves so much, he just snatched him off the earth. I have no idea what that means. Then, when everything starts getting really bad, we have another member of Seth's genealogy. In fact, he's the only remaining righteous man on earth, Noah. And through Noah, God reboots the human race. He wipes away the wickedness. He wipes away Cain's line, and it starts again with Noah. But Noah has three sons. So which, through which of these Will this hero come? And God chooses Shem. And Genesis goes out of its way to show Shem's genealogy, but there's this long pause, this almost empty space, this silence, where God doesn't seem to be doing anything until suddenly, at the end of Shem's genealogy, it breaks at a man named Abram. And all of a sudden, Scripture just zooms into this guy, Abram. We've been been jumping generation to generation. Hundreds, even thousands of years are going by. And suddenly, zoom, a descendant of Shem, a descendant of Seth, of Adam, is suddenly critically important. And out of a pagan nation, out of a family, God singles out one guy simply by his sovereign choice, Abram. And that's what we're going to pick up tonight. Go all the way back to the first book of the Bible. This is where we'll spend our time. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, verse one. So if you look at the, the paragraph before it, it's just, genealogies all the way through this chapter 11 part. And we zoom in on Abram. Now let's look what the Lord says to him. Now the Lord, all capital letters, it's the name of Yahweh. Now Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. Abram, leave home. Leave everything you've ever known, everything that's comfortable. Go to someplace entirely different. Where, Lord? I'll show you when you get there. Verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 1 when God speaks to Adam and Eve and says, and God blessed them. And said, go be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. So we have God's blessing from the very beginning of time to Adam and Eve kind of being remixed to Abraham right here. And God is taking full control. I'm blessing you, and I am going to make you a great nation. I am going to make your name great. And guess what? You're the one that I'm picking. Through you, I'm going to bring my Redeemer, who's going to bless the entire world the world is dying in sin and going to hell has hope because i'm picking you abram's response verse 4 so abram went and the lord or as the lord told him and lot abram's nephew went with him so god changes his name from abraham which means a great father to, or from Abram, which means a great father to Abraham, which means a father of multitudes. And in his old age, when his wife should not be having babies, he has Isaac. But Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. You probably remember the story from Elijah a few weeks ago. And God chose Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. Each of those sons is going to have a family that expands into an entire tribe. But which of the sons will it be? And God does something really fun. First of all, in Genesis 49, God chooses Judah. It will be through Judah's line that this Messiah, this Savior, this Redeemer is gonna come, and God actually adds on to it. God says he's not just gonna be another another man, he's gonna be a king. He's gonna be from a, a royal lineage. Judah, all future kings of Israel are coming through you, buddy. And then, a few chapters later, as we get into Exodus, God picks the tribe of Levi for something entirely different. He chooses Levi to be the tribe of priests. And then he establishes Aaron, Moses' brother, to be the first high priest. So of a tribe of priests, there is now a lineage within it of high priests. And this high priesthood is passed from father to son, from father to son, from father to son. And all the kings that will come from Israel are gonna come from the tribe of Judah, beginning with David. And all of the priests are gonna come from the tribe of Levi. And all of the high priests will be a direct descendant of Aaron. Are you all following me? You have to understand this before we really get the ball rolling. This is so fun. Why is this important tonight? We have to recognize that Abraham, being God's exclusive choice to carry the promise of a Savior, makes Abraham the most important person alive on the earth at that time. Nations are rising and falling during his lifetime. People are living and dying during his lifetime. But the attention of the plan of redemption by God is on Abraham. Through him, God's rescue mission is going to come. So, who's this character, Melchizedek? Turn over two chapters Genesis 14. So Abraham moved into the land of Canaan, surrounded by pagans, worshiping all kinds of idols, awful idols, whose priests demand terrible things of people, like burning your babies alive and stuff. And he's surrounded by this awful culture. And him and Lot, his nephew, have a falling out. So they go different directions. Abraham and his family and his servants, they sort of remain apart from society, living in tents. Lot, on the other hand, decides to move into the city and moves his family to the city of Sodom. Anybody know any stories about Sodom? That'll get crucial in chapter 19. Then politics happens. Really fun politics, if you like battles. There are five cities around Abraham who pay taxes five cities, who pay taxes to four kings that live in a faraway land, and they decide they're going to rebel and stop paying taxes. So what happened when the 13 colonies decided to stop paying taxes to England? War. England came over to try to reestablish rule. We win, yay. So the four kings are like not having it. So they get together. They've merged their armies into one giant army and they march over to Canaan to confront the five cities and whip them back into shape. Are you still following me in the story? Four kings, five cities. The rebels, the confederacy, you got to get what I'm saying. So they meet in this place called the Valley of Siddim and they have this big battle and the four kings destroy the armies of the five cities. They reestablish control. Not only do they whoop them, but they also sack the five cities and steal their position, their possessions, and they also take a whole bunch of people with them as slaves, and they start heading home. Well, one of the cities, one of the five cities, was the city of Sodom. Who lives in Sodom? Lot. That's right, Abraham's nephew. Thank you, Elijah, for paying attention. So Lot gets taken captive by the four kings, and he's being drug off to a faraway land. Someone escapes and runs to Abraham and says, Abraham, your nephew is being taken away as a slave. And Abraham's like, let's go. So he gathers together 318 men, and Abraham chases down the four united armies, He divides, Abraham divides his 318 people in half and he attacks them by night and Abraham and his little guerrilla group defeat the united armies of the four kings. Not only do they defeat them, but they come bringing back all of the stolen possessions and all of the people that were taken away as slaves. God was with Abraham. That's where we're picking up our story tonight. Genesis chapter 14 Verse 16, Then he, Abraham, brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. So as Abraham's coming back, Abraham in one battle became the wealthiest cat around. He owned all the stuff that was stolen from five cities. And on his way back, We have a king, the king of Sodom, who intends to have a rendezvous with him. Let's keep reading. And Melchizedek, king of Salem. Okay, so we have two people that are going to meet Abraham. And it looks like Melchizedek kind of beats the king of Salem there. He meets Abraham first. And Melchizedek, we don't have any genealogy. All we have is and Melchizedek. That's it. We have no story. We don't have any background. We've got nothing on this guy. This is the first time he pops up. It'll be the last time we see him in all of the historical books. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him. All right. So Abraham's loaded down with loot. And this mysterious character, who we have no background on, comes and meets him and brings bread and wine as a meal for Abraham and all of his company. This is a big gift. And Melchizedek is a king, but he's not a king of one of the five cities. It's not like he's trying to get anything from Abraham. He's not one of the defeated kings. He comes out, meets Abraham with this gift of a meal, and then he blesses him. A couple of things that I want you to see. Here are three of them. First, Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Salem will be changed into the name Jerusalem. Salem means peace, which means that Melchizedek is ruling the city that will become the most important city in all of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, This is the city where David will reign from and all of his descendants. This is the city where the temple will be built and worship of God is focused. This is the city where Jesus is going to die on the cross and resurrect from the grave for our sins. He is the king of proto-Jerusalem. Second, unlike every other king, every other person in all of Canaan who are pagans, who worship idols, he comes out of nowhere and just happens to worship the same God that Abraham does. He worships Yahweh. This is so weird. We have no no context outside of Abraham's family of anyone who, who knows God. And yet suddenly we have this sighting, this guy who came from nowhere, who worships the same God as Abraham does. And third, if you'll notice, it says that he was the king of Salem and he was the priest of the Most High God. He fills a position that no other king in all the Bible will fill. He is both a king and a priest simultaneously. How did he become king there? How did he learn about Yahweh? How did he become a priest? The Bible has no interest in explaining these things to us. He comes in out of nowhere, and right here, he disappears. Let's keep reading. Let's start in verse 18 again. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high and he blessed him. He blessed Abraham and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek meets him and blesses him Melchizedek confirms God's blessing on Abraham. This is huge. This is unique. People don't bestow God's blessings. Only God does. Let's look and see how Abraham responds. <clears throat> and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abraham gives Melchizedek 10% of all that he has, including of the spoils that he's bringing back from the victory over the four kings. Giving an offering is something that is done to God. This is the only time we see Abram giving an offering to anyone. So what's happening here? Abraham's receiving the blessing from Melchizedek and turning around and giving an offering to Melchizedek shows us four things. Are you ready to write? Because these are critical for next week when we dig into Hebrews 7. So Abraham is living in a totally pagan, polytheistic culture. And up to this point, Abraham is the only worshiper of Yahweh that we know of. And he would never, ever have given an offering to a priest of an idol, a false god. So by giving an offering to Melchizedek and validating the blessing that Melchizedek gives him, Abraham is validating to us that the priesthood is legitimate and it's legitimately under Yahweh. Melchizedek is a legitimate priest under Yahweh and under no other idol or pagan God. And he's confirming it by giving him this offering. That's the first thing. Abraham legitimizes Melchizedek's priesthood. The second thing, Unlike every priest we're going to read about in the Old Testament, Melchizedek's office did not come to him by winning a war or being in a genealogy. Remember I told you how the high priesthood only belonged to Aaron's family, father to son and father to son? Well, Melchizedek is a priest apart from any genealogy. Yet we have no background on how he became a priest Long before Aaron's ever going to live, 560 years before the priesthood is established in Israel, Melchizedek is already a priest. So he didn't come by his position by an arbitrary genealogy. He was appointed by God's sovereign choice. That's the second thing that's important. Melchizedek was appointed a priest by God's choice. But, number three, Melchizedek's position is even greater than a mere priest. Remember how we talked about spiritual federalism? This is what a high priest does. A high priest represents the entire nation. And that high priest takes a a sacrifice for a sin offering and takes the blood from that sacrifice and goes in before God representing the entire nation. And that high priest representing the entire nation, gives a sacrifice for sin, the sin of the entire nation. And God atones for that sin by the blood of the sacrifice being represented by this man, this high priest, so that the entire nation is atoned for. Were you able to follow me in that thought? So a priest, a high priest's job is to stand as the federal head of the nation And God would atone for the nation's sin by the work of this one high priest. But look at Melchizedek. A priest's job is to represent people to God, but Melchizedek represents God to Abraham. He stands as a federal representative of God. Because Abraham treats him as if he stands in the place of God, in the office of God. There have no other place in scripture is there ever someone who stands in the office of God to be be respected and submitted to as God. To prove this point, the author of Hebrews that we just read in chapter 7 points out Melchizedek's names I'll read it to you again. Chapter 7, verse 2. He, Melchizedek, is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. What human is worthy of that? And yet, here he is. Melchizedek is standing as God's representative. And this is critically important to our author of Hebrews when we dig in next week into Hebrews 7, that we understand that Abraham was the most important person on the face of the planet except for Melchizedek because Abraham, and here's point number four, Abraham submitted to Melchizedek as his superior. By receiving the blessing, echoing God's blessing, and giving an offering, something that you do for God, Abraham submitted to Melchizedek as his superior and honored him as being in the place of God. So I'll review those four. Melchizedek's priesthood was legitimately under Yahweh. He was appointed by God. He represented God to Abraham. And fourth, Abraham submitted to him as his superior. And now the story is going to circle back to that other king that went to meet Abraham Let's pick up in verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, oh, he finally showed up. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So Abraham, you came back with all this loot. Give us the people back, and I'm going to let you have all the stuff. I'm going to make you a wealthy man, Abram. Verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. So we have a contrast. Melchizedek, the king of Sodom, is bringing a meal and confirming God's blessing, but the king of Sodom is offering Abraham a monetary reward. Why? Abraham saw right through him. Lest you should say, I made Abram great. What does the king of Sodom want? He wants superiority over Abraham. Did you follow that? Abraham honored Melchizedek's superior over him, but this guy is trying to use bribery to to gain Abraham's affections and Abraham's loyalty to him. This guy, this king of Sodom, wanted to honor himself so he could say he made Abram rich. And he wanted Abraham to be indebted to him in the future. But Abraham's submission was to God alone. And he made an oath that he would receive increase only from God. I love how Abraham refuses to allow an evil king to control him. Only God was his superior. Abraham refused to allow this guy to receive recognition for his success. Only God would receive honor for Abraham's success. And if success or gain or wealth wasn't from Yahweh, Abraham didn't want it. Let's read one more verse. Look at how God beautifully responds to Abraham's loyalty. Chapter 15, verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. What does God say? Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward She'll be very great. Why a shield? Why is God saying, using the word shield? Because Abram just came back from battle. What's God saying? Abraham, I'm the one that protected you. I've got you. You're under my protection, my guardianship. I'm caring for you. And then what does God say? Your reward shall be very great. Abraham, you don't need material stuff, you did it right. I'm going to be the one that blesses you. Abraham may not have the protection of an alliance with an evil king, but God is his guardian. And he may not have the wealth acquired through looting and blood, but God is his rewarder. So I need to ask you guys tonight, is God enough for you? Is he What gives you enough? We live our lives like hungry, hungry hippos. We just go just trying to gain as much as we can. Gain status, gain money, gain pleasure, gain security, whatever it is. We're just reaching, grabbing, gaining, gaining, gaining. Can you make more money? Jump on it. Can you have more popularity? Jump on it. Can you have a cuter girlfriend? Go. We're always grabbing, grabbing, grabbing. We just want success and gain. And this is how we live our lives. And then we try to rationalize it, saying, well, you know, This just worked out so perfectly. It must be God. This is definitely God's idea. We used to have uh, maybe 10 students in our last youth group that were theater kids. They lived their lives around the theater. And Jackie and I would love to go and watch the plays they put on. They were high-production plays. And so since they would have so much time in the theater, they would have trouble making Wednesday nights. So I started getting together with them for breakfast once a week and just doing a devotional with them. And I remember one devotional, I sat down with them. All of them, they were directing their lives towards acting. This is what they wanted to do. They were going to go to school for it. They were going to go to college for it. They were going to push into the industry any way that they could. And if you don't know my background, my parents came out of show business world. And I remember sitting across the table from them. They were at Panera. And I was like, look, I know a little bit about where you're going into from the stories that I've heard. And I can tell you that the only way people move up the ladder in show business, in Hollywood, in the industries you're going to, is by compromising themselves entirely. Their career is the only thing that's important. They'll sleep with whoever they have to. They will do whatever on camera that it takes. Whatever it takes, through whoever it takes, is what it takes. But you guys claim to be Christians. You're going to have to walk a very difficult road of choosing Jesus over advancement, where you can't just say, well, I will, I'll take whatever roles come along until I have enough fame and, and money that I can be more selective. No, Jesus is worth fighting for now. Our lives are lives of integrity now. <clears throat> and you would have thought I insulted their parent. They, like these people that, that we loved and poured into for years sat across the table from me like, no, we we can't do that. And the reason they had such a flinch is because for them, Jesus wasn't enough yet. Their, Their commitment to the Lord was secondary to what they believed would give them enough. Genuine men and women who serve the Lord Serve the Lord. Our lives are sacrificed for His sake. God has stepped into our worlds and He is cleaning house of every other idol that we turn to to make enough. Every other idol that we look for for security or meaning or value or gain or success or pleasure, He is cleaning house of idols. Are you at a point yet that your heart recognizes a superior? And are you at the point that you're willing to make your life an offering for him? Because that's what Jesus is asking. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. Jesus clearly says in Matthew, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him Deny himself, let her deny herself and take up their cross and follow me. A cross is a symbol of death. We are dying to our dreams and hopes and visions and wants, securities and pleasures and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. For what will a man or woman profit if they gain the whole world? but forfeit their soul. I sat across theater people whose dream was to gain the world, and they weren't ready to lay aside whatever it took to make Jesus first, despite the career that they wanted. What is it in your life what are those things that you look to for security? When you have a bad day, where do you go? What do you do? What are those things in your life that you look to for, for meaning or purpose or identity? What are those things that you look to for pleasure, recreation, enjoyment? Where do they rank? Are they something that you hold open-handed before a superior, before your Lord? You know, many are going to stand before Christ and they'll say, Lord. Lord. And he'll respond, I never knew you. Depart from me. Those are the scariest words in the human language. Why? Because they're coming to God and they're saying, Master, Master. That's what Lord means. And his response is, I was never your master. Depart from me. Are you willing to bow? To Christ, Are you willing to make your life his offering? Are you willing to lay aside everything that would challenge your supreme love for him? You know, God's gonna let us go through difficult times in our lives. Is he enough for you? There's gonna be times when we have very little. Is he enough for you? Is there there's gonna be times when we suffer rejection? Is he enough for you? There's gonna be times when we're dealing with pain, loss, and distress. Is he enough for you? A mature Christian understands that we are foreigners in this world and nothing that society offers us has any real value. And God is not fitting us for society. He's preparing us for eternity. Quick recap. Here are the things we need to remember for next week. Melchizedek has no genealogy, no history. He seemingly comes from nowhere and he has no recorded death. He functions as both a king and a priest. And here's the four things that were validated by Abraham's offering. One, he's a legitimate priest of Yahweh. Two, his unique office comes from God's selection, not by genealogy. Three, he stands in the place of God to Abraham. And four, Abraham honors him as a superior. Heavenly Father, I thank you for challenging our hearts tonight. There is no God but you, and there is no life of value apart from a life of worship and sacrifice for you. We love you, Lord, and we surrender this time in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.